Here we go, Kings and Kingdoms, part five. We're going to talk about David and Goliath today. And so this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to say this a lot. I think it's largely misinterpreted. I think we miss the point of it all the time. And I even want to start by making you think about this. When I say David versus Goliath, what is the theme that comes into your mind? It's probably an underdog getting a victory over a much superior opponent. It's actually such a famous term that we use it to describe matchups or um, people overcoming big obstacles. Like, oh, that's like a David versus Goliath thing. So that could be in sports. Sometimes there will be a team like the national championship game this year. People were like, this is a David versus Goliath matchup. And, and I hate to tell you this, but Goliath won pretty handily. That happens sometimes in life. Um, Slumdog Millionaire is this movie that won an Oscar a few years ago, actually a lot of years ago, I think. And it's an awesome movie. It's basically uh, about some poor kids that grew up in the slums of India. And one of them in particular just follows his journey. And he he gets on the game show of, of that version and that place of who wants to be a millionaire. And he answers all these trivia questions. I won't tell you what happened, but it was this David versus Goliath story, this humble kid from this small background with, with a poor upbringing, trying to overcome all odds and win a million dollars on this game show. It's a really good movie. Um, another one, when I Googled David and Goliath, kind of modern day stories, in 1999, there was a high school newspaper in California that noticed some things in the way that the national media was reporting a situation about human trafficking. And they saw some discrepancies in the story. And so they called it out in their high school newspaper. And what was crazy is that the police kind of caught on to it. And um, they basically used this high school newspaper to take down this gigantic human trafficking global thing that was going on. It was this ultimate David versus Goliath, this high school newspaper that ended up taking down this crime ring. It was unbelievable. And so we, we say that because it's such an iconic story because we use it as an example of any moment where a small team or individual can overcome seemingly insurmountable odds. And it's iconic for a reason, because when we read it, what you're going to see is the author does something that's so rare in Hebrew literature that he slows way down and he prolongs the story. It's like, why would he do that? It's because he wants us to really fixate on the story and really sit in it. And as you know, if you've heard it taught before, is this famous story, it's probably the most famous story about David. It actually deals with one of our most fundamental needs and problems and questions as humans. And it's this, how do you deal with fear? That's one of the biggest questions that everyone has as a human. How do you deal with fear? I even want you to think about this right now. What is causing you fear today? Like in your life right now, what is causing you fear? Okay, now the ordinary way to read this story, I'm sure you've heard this before, is to say that Goliath represents your fears and David is the inspiring example to show you how to handle those fears, which is to go right at them, take them on. And what I'm going to show you today is that's a really shallow understanding of what this story is actually showing us. When we say that, we're missing the main point of the story. And how powerful it really is for us. And so what I want to do today is really simple. I want to walk through the story. And then I want to ask, what does this actually mean for us? I'm going to give you two takeaways that it actually means for us. And it's different than what a lot of us are thinking. Okay, so the story is this. It's long, so we're not going to look at every verse. We're just going to kind of sum it up. 
Uh, as we go, the story starts with an invasion. All right, so check this out. This is verse 1 through 3. Just look at the first verse. I'm not going to read all these names to you, but the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And then I want you to read these places. Just look at them. These are real places. And there's a reason why they're there. I'm going to show you in a second. Okay, so Saul, the men of Israel, they were gathered. They drew up their line. Philistines stood on the mountain on one side. Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. There's this valley between them. So I want you to picture that scene. So Philistines are invading them. Now, if you remember, God chose Israel. He chose his people to represent him and his purposes in the world. And he would often call on them to trust him even when things were crazy, even when the odds were against them. And this is one of those situations. Now, here's why I bring up the point about all these names. You can actually go to this place today. Some of you have been to Israel, so you can, you've actually maybe even gone there. I have not gone. We were actually thinking about planning a trip for us at some point. We're working on that. But my mom went to Israel. And this is a picture of a rock from that valley. You can actually go to the valley. It's, there's like 100% confidence that this is where the battle of David and Goliath happened she said, when you went there, no one was there. And she took this rock home with her. That's literally a rock from the valley. And so I tell you that because this is a real story. We kind of dumb it down into this children's story. But the authors clearly say, no, no, this is like real stuff. This is a real place. You can go see it for yourself. You can get a rock that David might have even used, right? And they wouldn't have really used it. But you know what I mean? Like you can see, oh, this is like a real place with real rocks, with real things. And so who's the enemy? Well, it's the Philistines, right? And the Philistines were wicked people. When I looked them up, they did things that I can't even say from the stage. And that should tell you something because I don't really have a filter on stage a lot of the times. And so they worshiped other God and they were warriors and they did just horrific things that you wouldn't even feel good about saying publicly. And so that's who they're up against. Okay, now this is what happens next. This is verse four. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath, of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Then his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and a shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So that word that describes Goliath, it's the word, you see what it said, they called him a champion. What that literally means is the man between. And so this was a very common way of fighting in that time. It was to have a champion. And so basically what happened is you would pick one person. It's supposed to be Saul for Israel, but he's terrified. We've already established that. And they would represent their armies. They would fight against each other. And then what would happen is the victory or the defeat is transferred to the entire army. It's very efficient, isn't it? It's like cost effective and it only kills one person. And so it's a really smart idea if you think about it. And so it'd be like this. If you've got a, a big test this week, which I'm sure you do because of the ice storms, like I'm sure you have like six tests. I'm not trying to stress you out. I just imagine that's typically what they do. And there's probably a subject, like for me, it was chemistry. And 
Like if, if one person, you pick one person, the smartest person in the class to take the test for everybody, and whatever grade they got, the whole class gets. Okay, for me, like chemistry, that would be amazing. That's what's happening here. It's like a champion that represents you. You get what they earn for you. They win, you win. They lose, you lose. Okay, now what's interesting in this, not only is he a champion, but do you notice the detail that he used to describe him? Robert Alter is a Jewish man. He's not a Christian. He is an expert in ancient Hebrew narrative. He's a college professor. And he reads this and he says that Goliath, if you do the math there, he's probably eight to nine feet tall, which is crazy. And in that time period, they ran some tests. And sure enough, there were a few people that had that height. It's very rare. Okay. And when he goes through the equipment, this is the most advanced military equipment that there was. He's probably holding on to himself about 125 pounds of gear. And this is the most technologically advanced equipment. And so this is rare that he would go through this much detail. This is not something that Hebrew literature does. Why would he do that? Okay, when I was in school, sometimes do they ever do this where they'd be like, it's a you know a seven-page paper. You're like, how am I gonna get this to seven pages? And so what you do is the strategy where you make every sentence like extra descriptive, and you're like throwing in words and adjectives and adverbs that are so ridiculous, but it makes everything longer. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's really not how Hebrew literature works. It's not, it doesn't really give you a lot of deal. It's not like, you know, Adam was in the luscious green garden and his blonde hair had the wind blowing through. Like, it doesn't do that. It just says Adam was in the garden. Like, that's how it works. And so why is he doing this? It's because he's trying to show you this is a bad matchup. He's trying to make you see this is a really huge opponent. Like, this is not going to be possible. This is who you're dealing with. He wants you to sit in the details and really see that. It was like when, for me, sorry, I, there's someone that counts my sports references. I can't remember. This is, is this number one or two. It depends on how you count the opening. So I think it's number one. But when I, I played defensive end, I was on the defensive line my freshman year of football, which was a really tragic era. And I remember the first game I lined up. Some of y'all, like, jaws actually dropped. I saw that. That's really, that's kind of <laughs> discouraging. I don't know. But, um, I remember seeing the matchup, and I, I quickly was like, I think I should probably play receiver. But a couple guys got injured. I played defensive in the whole situation. That's what's happening. He's looking at the matchup, and he's like, this is a disaster. Like, you're not going to win this. Okay, so there's a couple things he's making really clear by slowing down and focusing on these details. This is an impossible and threatening situation. And then what you see is what's the response to that? Goliath is mocking God, and the people are terrified. And that's important because in this story, we sometimes see it as ah, David versus Goliath. No, but really what's happening is God's honor is being mocked. His name and his reputation are being mocked and disrespected. That's the background of this story. Okay, now we'll, we'll keep going here. We're finally introduced to a little bit of hope. This is verse 12. We get David. Okay, finally David comes on the scene. But watch this. This is verse 17 to 18. Look what he's doing. He's not in the battle. He's not fighting. This is what he's doing. You have the next one, Billy? Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, these 10 loaves, carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if they're well, bring some token from them. So he's on a bread and cheese run. Okay. It's not exactly exciting. Like when you see your hero What's he doing? He's like on Uber Eats right now. That's what he's doing. 
He does, it's not very impressive. He's Uber eating bread and cheese to the guys who are actually fighting. Like this is the guy that God is going to use. And then watch what he says in verse 26. These are the first words that David speaks. This, we have not heard from him up to this point at all. Like these are literally the first words in the Bible that David speaks. That's always important in the Hebrew. That's going to tell you a lot about the person. Watch what he says. He goes to the battle. He's Uber eating. He's got his bread and cheese. He's waiting for his tip, I guess. And he hears this Goliath guy mocking God. And this is what he says. He says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's bothered that God's honor is being mocked. And so this is what you do. And I want you to hear this. The first words out of his mouth are he is putting a theological lens on their problems. He is taking his beliefs about God and he is applying them to their problems. Okay, this is so crucial. Is for him, his beliefs about God, like God's been left out of this so far. No one's thinking theologically. No one's thinking in a God-centered way. Then David comes in and puts God into the situation. But this would be a little shocking that the Uber Eats kid is offering to fight. Like he, after this, he's like, hey, I'll fight him. I'll take him down. That's a little shocking. The dude who's carrying the cheese is like, do you want Parmesan or cheddar, right? And it's like, oh, I'll kill him. Okay, that's crazy. And that's what's happening here. And so Saul's like, that's not going to work. Saul gets wind of it. He doesn't even remember him. And so David's saying, hey, I'll kill this guy. And Saul's like, that's not a good idea. Like, not a good idea. This guy's huge. Like, have you seen how big he is? And then watch what David says. This answer is so cool. He says to Saul, the king, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So Saul again is like, you can't do that. And David says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. This is so cool. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down lions and bears. And so this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them for he's defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. He's like, okay, that sounds good. Like you've killed lions and bears with your bare hands. That sounds awesome. But what's David really saying? He's saying that he trusts God's faithfulness when everyone is watching because he's seen God's faithfulness when nobody was watching. Okay, David has seen God's faithfulness in the past and that fuels his trust in the future. Is the same thing true for us? Like when we fix our eyes on how faithful God has been to us in the past, that helps us trust him in the present. And so David had a relationship with someone that he trusted. Okay, they mentioned an OU Texas game, Sports Illustration number two, but kind of, not really. Um, I got invited to the OU Texas game in 2008, but the catch was that I had to sit in the, the Texas section. There's the upper deck Texas section, and I'm not going to try to be offensive to them, but it wasn't the classiest crowd. I'm just going to throw that out there. And so I'm in the upper deck of the, shall we say, intoxicated Texas section, and I'm the only dude wearing crimson. And that's a little intimidating, especially when they made a lot of bad calls in that game. I still remember if you want to ask me about that next week on your little question thing. And so I'm yelling and they all turn and look at me. But here's the thing. The guy that I went with was my friend Ty 
and he's the starting center for the Highland Park football team. He bench pressed 365 pounds. This guy's huge. And he comes in and he's just ripped. And so I cannot tell you the confidence I had in this, this game. I was yelling stuff, talking trash. Why? Because I'm with Ty. And Ty's huge. And I know he's got my back. At least I thought that he did. And so it's the same thing. Like, I'm not confident, but I'm with him. And that's how David feels. Is David is seeing that he's with the God of the universe who's with him and for him. And so what mattered was not that he had the best weapons. It's that he had the real God with him. And so God's strength shines most brightly in our weaknesses. And that's what David has learned. And so in verse 45 to 49, he gives his epic speech. Goliath's taunting him. But this is what he says to him. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Okay, that's, that's intense. Like that'll, that'll ignite the, the fire a little bit there. I'll give you the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth, see his concern here, may know that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hands. So that speech there is longer than the fight. You can read the rest, all right? And as God's people, we are meant to have this story deep in us and how we think about things. This shapes a huge view of God and a small view of self and a small view of our circumstances. Now, watch what happens. Philistine arose, came across. David picks out a stone and he slung it and it struck the Philistine on his forehead, sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Like, is that realistic? Um, There's a guy I read this week. He's an expert of war weapons, and he studied this. And he said that in that time period, through a sling, you could actually propel a stone 100 to 150 miles an hour. Okay, now, without going into too much detail, some of them saw this. I've gotten hit by a lacrosse ball at nearly 70 miles an hour, and it almost immobilized me. I thought I was going to die. Okay, so 100 to 150 with a stone going right into the head. That, some people said that's more dangerous than arrows. Okay, but he let, Goliath lets his guard down because he doesn't see a sword. He doesn't see anything like that. And David hits him right in the head. All right, then watch what happens. And we're going to tell you why this matters for you. 51 to 53, this is the epic part of the story. David ran over. He stood over the Philistine. He took his sword, killed him, and cut off his head with it. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. Philistines saw that their champion was dead. They're like, oh, that's bad. They fled. The men of Israel and Judah, they arose with a shout so they go from fearful to like fired up with courage, right? They pursue the Philistines and uh, they came back and they plundered their camp. They took everything. They got everything because David won the battle for them. Now, here's why I bring this up, this part. It's funny to me that we make this a fun little bedtime children's story, isn't it? Like, think about that. Like, hey, gather around, kids. We're going to talk about the time that David shredded Goliath's head from his body and held it. Like, that's what we do with this story. Like, this is a rated R graphic story that's meant to make a point. And so the question is, like, that's the story. What does it have to do with us? Like, why do we even tell that? Why do we walk through it? Okay, well, I want to give you two takeaways. Okay, so here here are the takeaways of this story. Number one is this, the problem of unreliable courage. And number two is the path to reliable courage. Courage. So what's the problem of unreliable courage? Well, often what we do with this story, when we say, what does this mean for you? We say that Goliath equals your fears and your problems. 
And David equals an inspiring example of how to face your fears and problems. And so just get out there and attack your problems. Like you can do it. Knock them down. Like you got this. It's used as a pump up speech, which often happens in some version. The last night of camp in a setting where you're have eaten bad food all week. You haven't slept well. So you're in an emotionally vulnerable state. Okay. And someone gives you this pump up speech and they're like, you're going to go home. And that problem, that sin struggle, you're going to attack it. Like it's going to be over. Like you got it. Like you just like David with Goliath, like you go and you fight your problems. And that might work at camp because you're not afraid of anything. And so you're like, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to attack this thing. But then what happens when you get home? And there's social pressure. And then the temptations come in. And stress is really real. And then fear and doubts and sin and struggles in problems, in temptation, in failure, begin to build. Like that thing you said, oh, I'm never going to do that again. You do it again. And so this mentality of, oh, just be David, like you got it. That is not going to cure you. That's going to crush you. But that's how a lot of us use this story. That's not what the story is trying to say. What the story is doing is it's showing you there's actually two sources of courage. One is an unreliable one, and that's Goliath. How does Goliath find courage? What does he do? He focuses on his assets. He bolsters his self-esteem and he visualizes success. That's what he does. Okay, now do we do the same thing today? That is the world's way of finding courage, is finding it in yourself, building your own self-esteem. I remember I, I got, um, I was offered floor seats at a Mavericks game a few years ago. And I remember this guy dunked and just starts beating his chest. He's like, I'm the man, I'm the man. And I remember sitting there like you're seven feet tall. Like what, what did you do other than be born? Like congratulations that you can do this. But there's something in it that was kind of gross, right? Like it was just this, ah, look at me, I'm amazing. And so are there any problems with this? Yes, because that brings you out of touch with reality. See, this is scary stuff for us in Dallas because we are people who often trust in our own abilities and our own resources. And we are proud of what we have earned. We like to promote ourselves. We like to make ourselves look good. Some of us do this with Christian things. Like we think we're a better Christian than other people. We think because we do good Christian things, like God owes us a good life. Okay, I told you I love the TV show Survivor, and I'm, I'm rewatching a season because Kat, our friend of you, remember, she's in Austin. She's rewatching a season. So we're just going to watch it together. I think she even listens to this. So shout out to you, Kat, if you listen to this. But um, every time in Survivor, every single time, they'll do a confessional. If anyone's overconfident, if they go into the tribal council, they're like, man, I feel so good tonight. That means they're going to get voted out. Guaranteed. Overconfidence is always foreshadowing for something bad is about to happen to them. Okay, it might work for the short term, but in the long term, finding this source of courage in yourself, in your assets, in who you are, is not going to work. Goliath had tremendous assets, but in the end, he realized that was unreliable. Okay, but here's the thing that's interesting is when you think about the sources of courage, the acts of courage that you admire, do you admire the courageous acts that come through self-confidence no, the courageous acts that we all admire are ones that actually come from self-sacrifice. Tim Keller used this example, and I thought it was awesome, that there were one of four people in the Titanic that sat in first class 
um, that didn't survive. There are four people that didn't survive. One of the four is this woman. And the reason she didn't survive is because she gave up her seat on the lifeboat to someone who had children. And she sacrificed her life courageously and was one of four people in first class who died so that somebody else could live. Okay, that's the kind of courage that we admire, right? Not the guy that dunks and is like, yeah! It's the person that sacrifices themselves for someone else. And so what we need is like, did she not have fear? Of course she had fear. What we need is not something that eliminates our fears. We need something that can help us be faithful in spite of our fears. They can help us do the right thing and be courageous in spite of our fears. That's what we want. How do we get that? That leads me to the second thing, the path to reliable courage. And this will be the last thing we talk about is how do you get that? How do you get reliable courage to face the things that cause you fear in life, whether it's your future, whether it's anything. I mean, you can name anything that causes you fear. Okay, put yourself in the story. Now, this is where usually people go wrong. I've been alluding to this. Usually when we put ourselves in the story, who do we identify with? We usually identify with David. We're like, yes, I'm that guy. I'm the courageous guy. But here's the reality. Is that really who we should identify with in the story? It's actually not. The people that we're most like in the story, other than maybe Goliath, if we're confident in ourselves, are the scared Israelites and the scared Saul. We're the people that are looking at our fears and we're terrified. Okay, Saul and the soldiers, they're scared because they're looking at their situation and their struggles instead of their God. And I think fear is one of the biggest struggles that we have in Dallas as Christians because we love comfort and we love control. I remember when the, one of the first ministry jobs that I took was um, to be a part of this organization, Armor Up. Some of you were a part of it and they, they weren't going to pay me a lot, but I felt so called to do it. And I had multiple people tell me, don't do it. Don't do it. That's a bad idea. Okay, because um, people are like, man, don't take a risk like that. Like that could go really bad. Even ministry, people say, man, don't do that. And so we live in this place that gives us a vision of the good life from an early age that revolves around being as comfortable and popular as you possibly can be. And that prevents us from taking gospel risks. And what we do is we try to hide our fears. We try, I'm not really that afraid. But deep down, we are obsessed with comfort, convenience, and popularity. And we, we don't want to take risks. Fear is one of our biggest struggles. We're more like the Israelites than we are David. And so here's the crucial question. This is the question of the whole thing. And I want you to hear this. If you don't hear anything else, if you've fallen asleep for everything else, that's fine. But make sure you hear this. Here's the question. I have it up here. What does God give to scared people in the story? That's the question. To scared people, what does God give? He does not give them an example because David never goes out there and says, all right, follow my lead, do this. That's not what he gives them. He gives them a champion and a savior. He does not give them inspiration. He gives them imputation. What do I mean by that? He doesn't give them a motivational speech. He gives them someone that wins the battle for them and that's imputed to them. Like they get to enjoy the fruits of David winning the battle for them. They didn't do anything. You see how they turned from fear to courage when David won the battle? All they did is run in victory and go take all the plunder. That's all they did. That was their only role. They got to enjoy what David did for them. He does not give them an example. He, he doesn't say, follow my lady. He's a champion. He literally stands in their place. But look at the kind of champion that he is. 
Okay, the whole story makes this so clear. He is a weak and humble champion. That's who he is. He's not a powerful champion. He's a weak, humble, unexpected champion. In fact, he wins because of his weakness and humility. Goliath's guard is let down. And so David saves his people through humility and weakness. And he also represents his people. He stands as a substitute in their place to win a battle on their behalf that they couldn't win. If you've ever, if you ever get sued, I hope you don't, but if you do, that's a weird way to start an illustration, by the way. But if you ever get sued, you probably will need a good defense attorney, okay? And what a defense attorney does versus a bad one, good defense attorney versus a bad defense attorney, is they're your advocate. Like they represent you legally in front of the judge. And so if you have a good defense attorney, if they win you a good verdict, you get the verdict that they won for you. Like literally the result is imputed to you legally because they won it for you. Like you didn't do anything, you just sat there. They won you the result. That's what's happening with the champion is they legally win you the battle. Now, why do I tell you this? Because if, if you haven't, like if this hasn't struck you yet, this, the point of this story is this sounds like somebody else, doesn't it? It's like God is trying to set this pattern in the Old Testament that he saves his people through a weak, humble savior who stands in their place and wins a battle that they couldn't win for themselves. And here's what's so cool. In Hebrews 11 and 12, when the author of Hebrews, who Chad talked about this morning, which was a phenomenal sermon, I almost said, let's just not meet and I'll just go listen to that and hear it twice if you were there. It was really awesome. But in Hebrews 11, they're remembering all these, these heroes that were failed, like David, But then in 12, he says, hey, remember them, but fix your eyes on the one that they point to. Who do they point to? They point to Jesus. This is verse two and three of Hebrews. It says, remember these people like David, but look to, fix your eyes on Jesus. Well, who is he? The founder and perfecter of our faith. You know what's so cool? The Greek word there for founder, it means champion. That's what he's saying. Is that Jesus is the champion of our faith. Our kagos, that's what he is. He is the ultimate champion okay because he took the ultimate fear which is being alienated from and condemned by god he takes away our greatest fear and he gives us our greatest desire which is unconditional love and acceptance that means that in him you are fully safe and so how does that work in real life when you fix your eyes on jesus who's the true champion for you he's the one that david points to is that for me when i was in high school i've said this a lot approval of man and insecurity were my biggest fears, one of people's acceptance. And that's what caused me to do a lot of the things that I did. I was afraid of rejection. But the more that I take this truth of the gospel and I soak it into my life through hearing the word preached, through reading the Bible, through people around me that remind me of it, the more it focuses me on Jesus and what he's done, the more it assures me of his love for me and the more that gives me peace Encouraged. And so the truth is this, and I want to end with this. You will become brave and bold more when you sink into what Jesus has done for you. When you sink into his righteousness, not your own. When you become more reliant on him and not yourself, you will watch anxiety and fear melt away. And so what do we do? We do two things. We admit that we need help. And we fix our eyes on Jesus. And so as SP comes back up here, I want to ask you about that. Do you have those two rhythms in your life to admit that you need help, that you're not the champion of the story? 
See, in our context, we like to hide it. And so I just want to encourage you, do you have people around you that you can raise your hand and say, hey, I need help with this particular area of my life, this fear, this sin struggle? And then do you have rhythms that help you fix your eyes on Jesus, who's the champion, the author, the, the founder, the perfecter of your faith? This story, see who it's really about? It's about Jesus. He's the one who stood in our place. And the more we hear that, um, the more we're going to sink into the courage that he offers for us. So let me pray for us. And then Espy's going to sing one song that just reminds us about his faithfulness and his goodness. God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you for this story that's not about us. It actually is about Jesus. We thank you that what you give to scared people like us is not a motivational speech or an example. But Lord, what you give to scared people like us is a savior, is a substitute, a champion to stand in our place. And so Lord, I pray we would sink more deeply into your faithfulness, into your goodness as we sing this last song. And then we would go forth in real reliable courage that's rooted in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.